I always hope that whenever the children disappear. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. We, we don't have much by way of announcements except to say that it's very cold um, and it's getting colder. So uh, next weekend will be even colder than this. Uh, if you have any need for blankets, jackets, things like that, come talk to us. Definitely don't want you to, um, to just be cold. Uh, everything should be normal, God willing, this week. So small groups on Tuesday and Wednesday night at 6 o'clock. The one on Wednesdays here, the one on Tuesdays at the seminary um, in the HSC, which now has ping pong tables. So that's, of course, the one that the kids go to. Um, and then the one here does not have any ping pong tables. Please do not get excited. Uh, Friday, if you want to join us on Friday uh, for food, clothes, things of that sort, you're more than welcome. And uh, yeah, I think that's about it as we get started. Please pray with me this morning. Father God, the world is so broken, and we are so broken ourselves. God, I pray that you would convict us and sanctify us, God. You make us more like you. We would care about the things that you care about. God, that we would do the things that you do. We'd love the way that you love and forgive the way that you forgive. God, in this morning, I pray that you would call us to worship. Lord, that you would call each and every one of us in spirit to worship you truly. Lord, that no matter what happens in our week that we could focus on you this morning only for a little while god i pray for all those who are cold this morning god that we could be part of uh, making sure they are warm and well fed lord and for each of us here today just pray that you would be near us uh, behind before beside us god you'd be with us in worship Lord, and we love you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. And we also pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the second Sunday of the season of Epiphany. I hope you have gotten to enjoy your first king cake of the season, if that is indeed something that delights you in a way that you celebrate. Uh, <laughs> Um, as I said last week, our readings uh, from the lectionary for this season are going to focus in on Jesus's life and his ministry. And our gospel reading this morning is from his first public miracle debut, the wedding at Cana. Um, I feel like everyone's probably pretty familiar with this story, and I don't need to talk a lot about it, especially for those of us who were here for the many, many years that we went through the book of John. <laughs> You've heard this story, and it's possible that it will come up again soon. Is it coming up, Alex? Is that going to be one of the passages for the? It's possible. It's possible that God you will hear it about it again soon. <laughs> um, but I did just want to take a moment to look at the way that all of our readings for this morning um, sort of interconnect. So our. Old Testament reading is from the book of Isaiah, and it's one of um, these beautiful promises, the sort of theme that you hear over and over. You'll remember, obviously, when we went through the book of Isaiah, um, that the people of Israel were in exile, and there was this feeling of, of desolation, of loss, of isolation, of being far from their home and being having families upended and everything uprooted, and we see this promise um, in our passage today that God will not rest until his people are vindicated and that he himself will be 
their family, will be their love, will be their, their place of safety and belonging. And the epistle reading, which we won't be reading this morning, um, focuses on, it's one of Paul's letters to the churches where he's talking about how we are all given various different gifts to serve one another and to be one body together. And that's sort of the common theme of these three passages. Um, as Alex talked about last week, and as we'll hear again today, like our conception of what marriage is, is very distorted. And so it's easy for us to distort um, the meaning of Jesus's miracle at the wedding of Cana as simply a like God's stamp of approval on the institution of marriage or something like that. But a wedding in that time, this is a community event. This is a community celebration. This is when the whole community is coming together to celebrate an event that is occurring for the benefit of the community, right? Very different from how we often celebrate weddings today. And the theme we see running through all of these passages is that God, who we know, is a community. Father, Son, and Spirit created us to be a community, and He Himself is our love, is our home, is our family, is our source of belonging and joy and peace, and He has given us one another. He has given up, made us for one another to belong and to be a part and to love and to serve as we are loved and as we are made to belong. And so that is our theme for the second Sunday of Epiphany. And Ben, could you please read our passage from Isaiah? Yeah, Isaiah 62, uh, verses 1 to 5. For Zion's sake I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake I will not rest. Until her vindication shines out like the dawn, and her salvation like a, like a burning torch. The nations shall see your vindication. And all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, and a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your builder marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Morning, church. Morning. I'm reading from the book of John, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to them, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what concern is that to you and to me? My hour has not come yet. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now standing there were six stone water jars for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out. Take it to the chief steward for the system. When the steward tasted the water that had become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the stewards called to the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and then the inferior wine after the guests have become drunk. But you have kept the good wine until now. Jesus did this the first of his signs and came out of Galilee. And revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. Please pray with us. God of abundant love, giver of all good gifts, you embrace the desolate and vindicate the forsaken. You call all of your children to share joyfully the unity and love that you lived in before time. But we do not trust the extravagance of your grace. We are afraid to share the gifts we have been so freely given. Our goods, our time, our hearts, our lives. 
Forgive us for our selfish fears. Shine the light of your love in our hearts again. Make us one as you are one. Amen. Brothers and sisters, believe and have hope. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, for the Lord delights in you. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Through him you are forgiven, you are welcome, you are loved. Let us rejoice together and give praise to the Lord. Let us delight in him, for he delights in us. O oh God of steadfast love, at the wedding in Cana, your son Jesus turned water to wine, delighting all who were there. Transform our hearts by your spirit, that we may use our very gifts to show forth the light of your love as one body in Christ. Amen. singing songs of praise to the God who loves us and who makes us one.
Dear God, we thank you for this cold, chilly day, and we thank you for who you are and for the space to gather together and to read your word and to worship you and to speak with you among our brothers and sisters and just to be in your presence. We thank you for this place and we thank you for what you're doing through the people here um, and through us every single day. We ask that everything that is brought forth, um, every offering laid bare, that you would bless those who give and that you would bring wisdom um, as it's being used to your glory. So we thank you for these things and for who you are.
great love just beyond our imagining, beyond our comprehension, beyond our ability to ever earn or adequately respond to. Thank you for your, the patience of your love, for the long suffering of your love, for the unquenchable hopefulness of your love, that despite the meager return you receive from us, you continue to pour out into our hearts, into our lives, into our communities, into our families, into our world. You pour out your love and you pour out your love and you pour out your love. Open our eyes to see the signs of your love around us. Open our eyes to see the people you have given to show us love and for us to show love to. Help us to be filled more and more every day with your love and become more like your love. Help us to listen for your voice in your word today as if we're listening to the voice of our greatest, most perfect, never-ending, incomparable, unstoppable, desperately needed love. In Jesus' name we pray. Good morning. Uh, Y'all should know that I'm literally standing over here because I have this wild, irrational fear of catching on fire in the middle of a sermon. And imagine what that would do to uh, your ability to trust me anymore to preach the Word of God if I literally got lit on fire in the middle of the sermon. Um, that just seems like a bad omen and sign, you know? Uh, please go with me to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Last week, we started a sermon series on marriage and singleness. I spent most of last week describing what I called myths or misunderstandings about marriage. Three of them. Marriage as improvement, marriage as fulfillment of longing, and marriage as contract. Last week, I promised to go more deeply into each one of those. So here we are today. We're going to do a deep dive on that first misunderstanding, marriage as improvement and look at the truth in Scripture, which speaks a word of peace in the midst of our arguments over these things. When I started to plan this series, I wanted to say this to kind of explain how, how we're approaching this. When I, when I started to plan this series, I originally actually had six marital myths and not three that I was going to present. I've been working through several different books on marriage lately, and so I was combining ideas from each text. But as I was working on this, I realized that the six myths of marriage naturally paired together. And that really there were only three myths, but they, they took on a different expression depending upon whether you're coming at it from a more conservative perspective or from the more progressive side. So last week I talked about three myths having two sides, like the two sides of a coin, but it's essentially the same myth, the same misunderstanding. So when you're talking about marriage as improvement, the core of the misunderstanding is a belief that marriage is for and about you. That marriage is meant to improve your life in some way. A misunderstanding that marriage is for and about you, and that marriage is meant to improve your life in some way. In conservative circles like the ones I grew up in, the misunderstanding looks like people putting way too much value and emphasis on marriage way too much value and emphasis. Like marriage is some sort of currency, and if you don't have it, uh, people feel sorry for you and awkward around you and try to give you some advice on how to get it, right? I remember as a child getting this impression, not from my parents, but just from the town that we lived in, like either you get married or you die sad and alone. Like those were your options, you know? And it was always kind of assumed if you made it to your mid-30s and you still weren't married, man, you blew it. Life ruined. Sorry, Ben. Blew it. 
In college, the girls would talk about getting their MRS degrees, and they would talk about being ringed by spring, and there was a lot of anxiety about what would happen to you if you didn't get married shortly after college. What kind of life would you lead? The passage we're about to read is going to discuss the idea of intentional singleness and celibacy. Where I grew up, the idea of intentionally remaining single was literally the punchline of jokes. It was seen as laughable. I confessed to uh, Bill after church last week that the reason this misunderstanding of marriage's improvement was first on my mind and first in my sermon is because this is me. This is my misunderstanding. This is my sin, right? And so it came first to my mind. I was never okay being single. I dated all through high school and college almost compulsively. Like I needed uh, a partner to make me feel complete, you know? And this was always my temptation. I, I tried to marry my high school sweetheart. I almost went into massive amounts of debt until my parents literally stopped me uh, trying to follow her to college and live in the same city. Part of it was bad advice I received, ideas about dating being unbiblical and you had to court instead of date and treat every relationship like it was a marriage. Uh, that whole bit, we, we don't even have time for all that. We're not going to go into that right now. Uh, but part of it, if I'm honest with you, is just me and my own sin and my own misunderstanding and the things that I tend toward. I put way too much emphasis and value on marriage. I don't remember hearing a whole lot about Christian singleness or celibacy at church. Uh, people seem to think that kind of talk was maybe a bit too Catholic. Robin and I were talking about this this morning. You know, it was a bit too Catholic, and so they tried to stay away from it, give it a wide berth so as to remain, um, you know, firmly rooted in the Protestant church that I was in. I, I'm not sure. I, I'm just guessing at the reasons here. If singleness ever did come up, it was usually as an insult. That's why you can't get a boyfriend. Or he's, yeah. Or Catholics believe in celibacy, celibacy and look at what their priests are doing. I remember reading the passage for the first time as a middle schooler, this passage we're about to be, read, and being legitimately confused. And went to my youth pastor to talk about it because I always thought that God wanted everyone to get married. The same exact misunderstanding exists in progressive circles, too. It's the flip side of that same broken record, thinking that marriage is for and about you, that marriage is meant to improve your life in some way. I remember when we lived in Boston, uh, we were an oddity as a young married couple <laughs> because no one there gets married until they're like 35, uh, not because they hold high views of singleness, but because there is a cultural idea of needing to pursue your education and career above everything else until you really know and establish yourself. Because what you're going to need to do in a spouse is try to find someone who will fit cleanly and easily into your life and make your life better, improve it, uh, help you achieve your goals, and help you towards your personal self-actualization. Until that point, until you hit that point in your career, uh, the opposite sex is either seen as a distraction or a diversion. Having a spouse in, in that culture was kind of like buying a car. You know, everyone wanted a spouse who would look nice, be reliable, not cost too much. Unless you had a ton of money, then you could afford like the luxury models, right? Uh, and wouldn't the neighbors be jealous? And if a spouse breaks, you, if it breaks down or starts acting up, you just take it to the therapist to see if they can do anything about that noise it's been making. And if it gets too much trouble, you just kind of bite the bullet and buy a new one. In the midst of a culture that believes marriage is for and about you, that it's meant to improve your life in some way, we hear the truth of God in his word today, a word that was just as relevant, just as countercultural in Paul's day as it is in ours. Please read with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Paul writes, Now concerning the matters about which he wrote, Quote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, end quote. But because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time 
you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again, so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now, as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. It is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Pray with me briefly. Father God, so much misunderstanding, Lord, so many falsehoods surrounding this issue. God, I pray that you would keep us from that. God, I pray that your truth would be what I teach. God, would be what we hear and understand, Lord, that your truth would set us free. I pray this in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen. The thing you have to know about the church in Corinth for this passage to make sense is that the church in Corinth was a hot mess. Paul wrote four letters that we know of to the church in Corinth, which is way more than he corresponds with everyone else. And this was not Paul checking in on the church, like my mom texts me and checks in with me occasionally because she loves me and wants to know what's going on. No, Paul keeps writing to Corinth over and over again because they have issues, and apparently Paul is the only adult in the room. And to drive home this analogy of Paul having to check in on a room full of misbehaving children, I will now attempt to summarize the book of 1 Corinthians with phrases that I have actually said to my own children when they misbehave. Stop! You're going to hurt! Yeah, like that. Look, if he keeps hurting you, go play with someone else. He's not your friend. Gross, dude. I don't want to see that. No, you can't marry your mom. You will understand when you were older. Use real words, kid. No one can understand you. If everyone's talking at the same time, I can't hear what anyone is saying. That's my attempt to summarize 1 Corinthians. Part of why Paul is writing this time is that the church in Corinth was divided and angry over the issue of whether or not it's better to remain single or get married. So Paul... So they wrote to Paul to clear it up, and and the conservative side of this group is trying to say that no one should ever get married, and everyone should remain celibate for all of time. And the progressive side was very pro-marriage, but marriage in their mind was just living together with whomever you wanted, and if it worked out, you were basically married. The argument is summed up remarkably well in the Disney movie, Frozen. One side is in their bedroom saying, conceal, don't feel, don't let them in. And the other side is out in the woods somewhere singing, let it go, let it go. We're still having the same argument in our churches today, but the sides have interestingly done a 180 uh, in that the conservative side now argues for marriage with vehemence that everyone should get married and the progressives are arguing against it. Both sides would have been hoping that Paul would land on their side in the argument uh, to put weight on their side, but Paul doesn't take sides. Instead, like Jesus, he cuts to the heart of the matter and speaks truth. Truth, in this case, is that singleness and marriage are both gifts of God, verse 6, and that marriage is more about giving yourself away than about gaining anything. Far from seeing singleness and celibacy as a life ruined, Paul writes in verse 6, he wishes everyone would be single and celibate as he is. For those of us who have trouble looking at singleness as a gift, it's probably because we have believed one of these lies, that these gifts are for and about us, for our own happiness and improvement. We hear the word gift and we think of bright packages and something we get to keep, but most of the time, when the Bible talks about God giving gifts, they're gifts that are given through a person to the world. Think about the other gifts of God, time, money, knowledge, wisdom, spiritual gifts. We are not supposed to keep these things to ourselves. We're supposed to use it, to quote Peter, 
as good stewards of God's varied grace to serve one another. God's gifts are given to you for your good and also for the good of the people around you. Truth is, singleness is a gift, but it's not a gift given only to you. Your singleness is a gift given to you for your good, but also for the good of the people around you. In verse 32, Paul explains, I want you to be free from anxieties, he says. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Sidebar. I actually love that line in verse 35, that last line there. Uh, every time I've had to correct someone as a pastor or have a hard conversation, I really want to quote this verse where he says, I'm saying this for your own benefit. Uh, singleness, Paul shows us, is freedom from worrying about a family. And it lets you focus on the church family. I'm friends with a pastor in our city. Uh, he's older than I am. Uh, the man pastors two churches. And I see him all the time doing denominational events and out in his community, meeting people, enjoying his community and people and friends, planning big outreach events. He doesn't need a big house or a big car. He lives near the church, so he can be more available more of the time. Meanwhile, my wife and I are foster parents, and we had a new foster kiddo come to us weeks ago. And since that happened, you know, I've been watching the clock at my ministry job and like running home the second it ends to help my wife because she needs me. And, and the kids need me, you know, and we tend to just like sprint and then it gets to 8.30 and we put the kids to bed and we sit down on the couch and she usually looks at me and says, hi, like she hasn't seen me yet that day, you know, like she doesn't know me. And hear me, I am not complaining in the least. This is what I want to be doing. And what I believe that God has given me to do and gifted me for, I love my wife and I literally praise God for her every day. Every day I pray with her and praise God for her and for our children, for the gifts they are in my life, but for your sake, for the church that I'm meant to serve. I'm sorry I can't give you more. And that so much of my life is spent in caring concern of my other family, as it rightly should be. I look at my single pastor friend and I see what Paul is talking about. His singleness is an incredible gift to those congregations that he pastors. My friend is completely focused on pleasing God. Everything he does, he does either out of enjoyment or out of his own personal enjoyment for the health of his church family or for the glory of God. When people ask to meet with him, he doesn't have to schedule it a week or two weeks out and at a weird time, like 5 a.m. on a Thursday, you know? It's when you try to use this gift of singleness for yourself in selfish ways, that it gets sad and unhealthy. People who despise their singleness so much that they leap into unhealthy relationships or just let their imaginations pine over what might be. Or people who use the freedom of single life merely to entertain themselves. But instead of wasting your single years, however many they might be, you can use them to build meaningful friendships where you have fun together, where you know, where people know you entirely and are able to live life together with you. You can commit yourself to the needs of your community. You can be that undistracted driving force behind the work and mission of the church. The gatherer, the instigator of community within the church, making it a family instead of a loose conglomeration of people who show up and see each other once a week. Singleness is a gift when you aren't trying to use it to benefit yourself. We all need to learn the value of singleness, to learn how to use it well in our lives and for the people around us. We need to stop looking at singleness with some kind of disappointment and see it for the gift that it is, even if it's temporary. Notice, unlike marriage, singleness is a gift that God has chosen to give to every person. As a child, again, in the resurrection, as the Lord tells us, there will be no giving in marriage. In the resurrection, just one wedding of Christ and his church 
As children, we learn what it means to form deep, meaningful friendships, where you share everything and play together and live life together. It's a beautiful window into our relationships in the new earth. And hear this, Christian marriage is a gift too. But again, it's not a gift only for you. Marriage is also a gift to your spouse. It's a gift to your community, to the next generation. One of the greatest gifts you can give your children is the gift of a healthy Christian marriage. The gift of singleness is, as we've said, a gift of freedom to the community. Marriage is a gift of bondage to that same community, a gift of things being bound together that no one should want to separate. The gift of marriage, Paul writes in verse 6, is a concession, something that God allows because of our sinfulness, and something which, again, does not exist in the redeemed heaven and earth. I said earlier that marriage is more an exercise in confession than it is an exercise in self-improvement. What I meant is that a healthy Christian marriage is a place where all of your pretenses, all of your titles, honors, even clothes are taken off. You have nothing that you are able to hide. Day one, you stop being the impressive young science teacher slash church small group leader, and you become that guy sleeping with his mouth open and drooling on the pillow. Or, you know, whoever you are in your professional life when you get married. I'm just giving a random hypothetical. Far from self-improvement, the call in Christian ma marriage is to self-abandonment, submitting your will and your benefit to your spouse. This is meant to be a mutual submission, each person concerned for the other's good. You are no longer your own person. You belong to another. To be married is not to gain a possession or some kind of accomplishment to put on your shelf. In Christian marriage, you are giving everything away. And to be married is not to show everyone you've improved. Rather, marriage shows you and your spouse all of the ways in which you are sinful and broken. You aren't able to hide anything behind any kind of pomp or pretense. It is both thrilling and vulnerable to have someone know you entirely. The person you're married to is able to break you with a word. You are so vulnerable to your spouse that simple things that your friends do all the time, and it barely affects you. Things like moving to a new city, getting an apartment, going on a date. If your spouse does those things, it would devastate you. Marriage, in an old sense of the word, is humiliating, meaning humbling. It lays your life bare and leaves you wide open. But the bonds of marriage, that kind of humiliating weakness, is strong enough to stabilize churches, schools, communities, children's lives. Marriage is a gift in many ways, so long as you don't hoard the gift, so long as you give it this gift of weakness and humility, this gift of boundness. Giving marriage is a gift to a community. Looks like this. It looks like people letting you, letting people see you be silly and cute with your kids, and realize that you were not only this serious person that they met at work or at church. So they had permission to show their playful side as well and open up. It looks like taking people into your home in times of chaos to experience the stability of your home. It looks like providing a safe place to grow and play for your children and your friends' children. It looks like homemade meals eaten with friends and cultivated gardens and pets and white tears and mess and growing greenly lifeish things. Just as with singleness, it's when you try to use this gift of marriage solely for yourself in selfish ways that it gets sad and unhealthy. When a married person, for example, stops loving and serving their spouse in humility and, in stand, and instead demands that that person serves their needs, desires, and goals alone. When instead of keeping the bonds of marriage strong, you envy the freedom of your single friends and try to mimic their gift by throwing yourself into your work, coming home late, coming out, going out with whomever you'd like, buying whatever you'd like. It looks like when you tell them you never gave me the life I deserved, as if life or another person being given to us is something that we deserve instead of an unimaginable wealth to steward as best we can in the time that God gives us. Friends, whether in this moment 
you've been given, the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness, my invitation this morning is the same. It's to pray to God that he might teach you how to steward this gift well, not hoarding it to yourself, but using it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And instead of despising your gifts, to praise God from whom all blessings flow. Pray with me now. Father God, I wonder how many of the gifts that you give are things that we despise and try to get rid of and throw away and never use. Lord, I pray that you would show us the immense value in the things that you give us, God. That you would day by day teach us the purpose and the meaning of these things, God, these wonderful gifts, these wonderful people that you've created, that you've put in our lives, God. Lord, I pray for our church that we would speak to each other, be honest, be family, God, that we would go deep and have friendships, God, that we would forgive each other, that we would know each other well enough to know what the faults are, and then look at it and say, you are still my friend. God, I pray that we would love each other in this, Lord, and that we would find ways, be we single or be we married, to use those things as a gift for the entire of the rest of the congregation. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name, so we know you hear us. Amen.
before we go, please join me in singing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Go in grace and peace to love and serve the Lord.